Today, I'm going to talk about two difficult passages in Mark. Twice in my readings recently, I thought, this is a tough passage. If I'm finding it tough, people at New Life have probably got questions, so I should preach about it. And these are Mark 11, a couple of verses, and Mark, the whole of Mark 13. And uh, the first one, uh, if you have enough faith, will you get any prayer answered? And the second one is, what about these prophecies Jesus gives about the future events? And then I'm going to talk about how we should respond. So let's go dive right in to Mark 11. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your, you your trespasses. So I don't think we have problems with verse 25. Anybody have any problems with verse 25? No. So it's the other two that have some difficulties. And on the surface, it looks like it might be teaching uh, what is called a name it and claim it gospel. Someone's called the prosperity gospel. And um, so just to step back a bit from that, um, there's a new age teaching that's become quite popular today in so-called spiritual circles that our words have got power to create things. And if you speak something with enough confidence, it actually brings it into being. And unfortunately, this new age idea has permeated some parts of the church. And um, uh, they believe that you know speaking things have got ability with enough faith to bring it into being. And I was once talking to a Christian who'd got mixed up in this, and he asked me how I was. And I said, I got a little bit of a headache. No, he said, don't. Don't speak that into being. Don't speak those words or you'll speak a headache into being. And uh, now, clearly Jesus' teaching wasn't teaching that. But what was he teaching here? What's happening? Suppose I pray with 100% confidence total assurance that God has already done it, I pray that Satan will be forgiven and raised to God's right hand. Will he do it? Like if I have complete confidence, will he do it? What if I pray that a billion dollars will come to me tomorrow? A billion dollars. And I have utter faith in that, total confidence in that. Will that happen? Why not? Unless it's what the scripture says. Are you going against the scripture? So, okay, uh, let me, let me, um, let me um, uh, just give you one other problem with this. Um, people who are, not, who are sick, in communities that believe in this kind of um, extreme faith teaching, are, people who are sick are shamed. You're sick because you don't have enough faith. Now, why you, you know, obviously, you know, you're, you're, not, you're not somebody you can trust. Look, you're sick. And uh, I don't know if you've heard the story of Johnny Erickson, who uh, had, um, as, a, as a teenage girl, got um, paralyzed, a para, uh, quadriplegic, and she wrote some amazing books. God has used her incredibly. But one of the things she talks about is how, you know, she's in a wheelchair, and she goes for healing, and nothing happens, and she just gets shamed. 
because she's not able to be healed. Oh, it's your fault you're not healed because you don't have enough faith. Now, that same logic would shame the Apostle Paul because he said he prayed three times the thorn in the flesh should be removed, and it wasn't. And uh, so what's going on there? So, I, so here's my, my answer to this. The problem is that the word faith has changed its meaning today in the way that we use it from the biblical meaning. It's become abstract. It's become a very sort of um, thing that's disconnected from anything else. It's sort of woo faith. And um, people talk about faith communities, um, and it's like some group that don't believe in faith at all. It's completely works they believe in. And they call them a faith community. Uh, one of these days, somebody's going to talk about new life as a faith community. I'm going to say, no, it's not. It's an evidence-based community. We're not a faith community. We're an evidence because we believe everything because there's really, really good evidence for what we believe. Now, God, that we, we absolutely know there is a God because it's just become distorted. So what I'm going to argue, what does faith actually mean? The original word for faith in the Bible is the same word for trust. And trust is a concrete term. Trust always means in someone or something. Usually it's, it's someone. It's a trust in a person. So um, I could say, I completely trust my car. Does that mean if I got complete faith in my car, does that mean I believe it could take me to the moon? No. It means that I believe that it, it, it won't stop me from driving stupidly, but it will behave as a car should. It will do the kind, it will behave according to its design and its character. It will behave properly as a car. Now, as I, as I wrote this yesterday, I didn't expect this morning this to actually be put into practice, but um, on our way here, and Peter can vouch for this because he was in the car as well, um, we were driving along um, Wellesley Street and a car in front of us pulled into the side of the road and so I was passing it and as I was passing it it just swerved out right across now at that point I can put complete trust in my brake pedal I placed my trust 100% in my brake pedal and it turned out that was a warranted trust and we must have missed it by inches um, I think God was involved as well there. Um, but um, we, we, so we, we praised him for him. So, but, it, but that was an act of trust, and it did what rake pedals are supposed to do. So how does this fit in with God? So when I trust God, I trust in God to, to be everything he says he is. So I trust he is the God who he claims to be. Uh, he, he says that he has infinite power. I trust that this is true. Uh, I trust he will always behave in accordance to, to, with his perfect and loving nature. And I trust he will absolutely keep all of his promises. So um, I, I think that we have just had an example in Jesus of somebody being saved through their faith blind Bartimaeus, the one we talked about last week. And I think we have to read these words of Jesus in the context of that example. And so if we think of this statement here about trust in God, what trust in God means, it doesn't mean you decide you want God to do something and you trust that he's going to do it. You know, you make up something for God to do, and then you assign that to God and say, God, I'm going to trust you're going to do that. No, that's not what, I, I can't decide my brake pedal is going to take me to the moon. 
and I have complete confidence, I press my brake pedal. No, because this is not what it, it, it is. That's not the reality. So let's go to the example of blind Bartimaeus and see how it worked in his life. Because at the end, Jesus said, your faith has made you whole. Jesus said, because of his faith, he was healed. He trusted, first of all, in Jesus' power. Remember, he said, you're, you're the son of David, you're the promised Messiah. And he called out that he was the son of David, which was the name for the Messiah. So he believed in Jesus' power, but he also trusted Jesus' will to heal. He knew that Jesus had never chosen not to heal a single person who asked. Everybody who came to Jesus and presented themselves to him with a sickness, Jesus healed that person. And so he knew that it was Jesus' will to heal. And so this wasn't an abstract faith he had. It was a concrete trust in a person's power and Jesus' consistency, that Jesus would treat him consistent with the character that he'd revealed. So uh, what this means for us, I believe, is that we pray according to the revelation God had given, has given us. He was praying according to what had been revealed about Jesus, and we, we do the same thing. So we know Jesus' power, God's power from the Bible. We know what that is. We, so we know that he can do all things, and we can believe that revelation. We also know from the Bible his love and willingness to, to, to bless, to heal, and so on. And so as we pray out of this and trust God, God might give us a sense of how to pray more specifically. Sometimes he does. Sometimes there's some more revelation given for praying, and the prayer can come out of that faith. Now, a, a really good example of this, I think, is Peter. So Peter, we read that he raised Dorcas from the dead. What did he do? Did he go just straight in there and say, in the name and power of Jesus, I rise you from the dead? No, he didn't. What he did was he went in there and he spent time in prayer. What was he doing? I think he was asking God's will. Is it your will for me to raise her from the dead right now? Because if it is, I can have 100% faith that it is. And he prayed, and God must have given him a revelation at that point. And so he raised her from the dead. So why did he need to pray first? Because he needed to know what God wanted in that situation. And so having a kind of an abstract faith in something that's detached from God and detached from God's will has got no value whatsoever. Prayer is, is trust in a person to act according to their character and their will. And even if God doesn't answer us like he answered Peter, we can still pray out of a trust in God's revelation. We can say, God, I know that you have power to heal. I know that you can do this. I know you're a God of love, and I pray, God, that you'll show your love and you'll pour out your healing right now. And we pray out of what we're given. We don't, we don't say, God, I'm commanding you right now to heal this person because I've got enough faith to do it. No, we, we're not doing that. That's stepping outside of this. Otherwise, it actually, you think about it, it becomes a trust in our own faith. It's, our faith is in our own faith. I believe I have enough faith to do this. And actually, it's not a trust in God. It's a trust in our faith 
to be powerful enough to heal this person or do this miracle. And so this is, I think, the answer to how we to understand this prayer in Mark. The prayer in Mark is not, it, it's, it's understood by replacing the word faith, which in our culture has become very abstract, with trust in a person, trust in God, trust in his character, trust in who he is, and not trying to make believe that he's going to do something which is not his will or character, like forgiving Jesus, Judas and raising Judas to his right hand. Sorry, not Judas, Satan to his right hand. Um, so that's um, my, my attempt to explain that. And I would love to hear, if you want to discuss with this with me afterwards, I would love to talk with you about it. It's so important. We see so much abuse of this um, teaching in Christian circles. It's really important that we, we have a balance, like we don't lose faith, we have, we're strong in faith, but our faith isn't, isn't a kind of new age mysticism that is faith in, in ourselves to have enough faith. So that was the first point about faith. And the second one is chapter 13, which is all about future events. And we're going to spend most of the time in this. And so let's first of all look at this passage in chapter Mark 13. Now, as Jesus was going out of the temple courts, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look at these tremendous stones and buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on another. All will be torn down. By the way, this was Herod's temple, which was one of the great wonders of the ancient world. One writer said, uh, if you haven't seen that, you've not seen the most beautiful building ever built. So it was quite remarkable architecturally. Verse 3, so while he was sitting on Mount of, uh, Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, where, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to take place? Now, this passage is also in Matthew and in Luke, and very similar. Like some places, it's identical. Some, there's a little bit more recorded by one of them than by the others. But essentially, it's pretty much the same in all of the Gospels. So Jesus then launches in to this description about the future. <clears throat> so... I'm going to read it just straight through right now, and then we're going to go back and look at the issues. Jesus began to say to them, Watch out that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. These things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up in arms against nation and kingdom against kingdom, there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. <clears throat> These are, they are but the beginning of birth pains. Be on, but be on your guard. You will be handed over to councils and beaten in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. First, the gospel must be preached to all nations. Now, I put that in red because it's like a time marker. Okay, so this is talking about something from the far future. When they arrest you and hand you over for trial, do not worry what to speak, but say whatever is given to you at that time. 
for it is not you who speak by the Holy Spirit. Brother will hand over brother to death and a father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. What's this about? The one on the roof must not come down or go inside to take anything out of his house. The one in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. Alas, for women who are pregnant and to those who are nursing their babies in those days, pray it not, may not be winter. Uh, for those the, uh, the, in those days, there will be tribulation, which is a, a, a long word for suffering. Unlike anything that has happened from the beginning of creation that God created until now or ever will happen. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But because of the elect whom he chose, he's cut them short. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is a Christ, or look, here he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, the elect. Be on your guard, I've told you everything ahead of time. <clears throat> but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And here are some more time markers. The stars will be falling from heaven. The powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man arriving in the clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send angels and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. Whenever its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that some is near. So also you, when you see these things happening, know that he's near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What? What does that mean? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But as for that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven, nor the Son, does Jesus not know, but only the Father. Be watching, stay alert, for you do not know when the time will be coming. The time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. He left his home and put his slaves in charge, assigned to each his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to stay alert. Stay alert, therefore, because you do not know when the owner of the house will return, whether during evening at midnight, when the rooster crows, or at dawn, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, stay alert. Okay, so some problems in there, mostly to do with the timing, like how does this work out? What's going on? Uh, and um, so I've gonna, I'm going to hopefully uh, sort out the problems and end up with a, a timeline of how I think the future will uh, unfold according to the scriptures. But first of all, I want to talk about something which um, theologians call prophetic perspective. And what that means is when you're looking at something a long distance away, things can look um, uh, difficult to determine whether something's further or close, and they're kind of all together in the future. 
and it's like a foreshortening. And uh, a good example of this is in Isaiah 11, that prophecies in the Bible uh, in the future are often melded together into one because they're related. Uh, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now we know this is talking about Jesus. The New Testament tells us this is a prophecy of Jesus. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So is that what Jesus did when he came? No, that's his second coming. And what we find is quite a number of places in the prophets, his first and second coming are merged together. They're like mountain range where you see the the early and the later mix merged together. A number of years ago, Anne and I went on the the, uh, train across Canada. And as we approached the Rockies, we were up in the the glass um, panorama car looking excitedly. And there in the distance, we saw the Rocky Mountains. Now, how many mountains are there? Well, you can't tell. It's just like a wall of mountains at that point. So we got closer, and the beginning individual mountains are beginning to to separate out. And then we got right up there, and there's an individual mountain. And then finally, we got right in to Mount Robson, the the tallest mountain in the northern Rockies. And uh, once we were there, we could see it individually. And this is the same with the prophets. Um, The way that God has chosen to do prophecy is sometimes to put together future events kind of collapsed into one. And as I said, often Jesus' first and his second comings are kind of merged together. And only when he came did Jesus say, I've not come this time to judge. This isn't my time of judgment. If he had, then who would be saved? But he came and it was split into two comings with this period of grace in between. So this is important. Also, some events happened and the, the first event happened was like a picture of it happening again. And, what, and we call these types in the scriptures and, and there are events and there are pictures. So for example, the sacrifices that happened in the time of of Moses were pictures of Jesus' sacrifice, like the lamb being sacrificed and so on. And those are pictures of events. And that kind of thing's happening, and the first time it happens, it's like like a picture of the final one. That sort of thing happens. And uh, uh, so what, what, there's a prophecy in Daniel, which we're going to look at now. And in that part, when Jesus is speaking, and it says, let those who... let the reader understand uh, what I'm talking about. The abomination of desolations would be well known to them because this is what happens in Daniel. Daniel 11 has a very specific prophecy which was fulfilled to the letter. In in his place shall arise a contentable person. And he's talking about rulers in in, um, the kingdom, the, uh, the Greek Empire, the Macedonian Empire, formed by Alexander the Great, and they um, uh, they were in control of of Judea at this time. In his place shall arise a contentful person to whom royal majesty has not been given. 
He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from that time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and become strong with the small people. It's kind of vague, but when it happened, you can see this happen in detail. Without warning, he'll come into the richest parts of the province. He shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scatter among them, plunder, spoiling goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plot shall be devised against him. And we know what this is talking about from history. Uh, He shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. In other words, he'll return from this war, this man, but his heart will be against um, Israel and shall shall work his will and return to his own land. At that time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Now, when we look at at church, at, at history, at the history of Judea, we find that there was a commander called Antiochus Epiphanes, and we have lots of archaeological evidence for him. He's a statue of him, a brutal ruler. And what he did was, he just, because he hated Israelites, he hated uh, uh, the God of Israel, and he decided that he would sacrifice uh, a pagan sacrifice in the temple to pollute it, and he would sacrifice a pig on the altar. And that is what he did. He sacrificed a pig on the altar. And this is the, the, uh, the abomination that makes desolate. And uh, it was, um, we read about it in, in uh, ancient history, very well documented. And eventually, in God's, in God's uh, uh, power, they were able to, to uh, get rid of him, and they re-cleansed the temple. And uh, so this was this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, very well known to Jews at this time. And what Jesus is talking about is like, Jesus is using the same language about what's going to happen in the future. He says there's going to be a desolation in the future. What actually happened? Well, at AD 70, there was, um, the Jews were really trying to revolt against the Romans. There was a massive uprising of Jews against the Romans. And they basically, the Romans basically had a holocaust against the Jews. And what they did was they it made it look like Jerusalem was free and it was open. Anybody could go in there. It was the time of the Passover and the Jewish historian Josephus claimed that 1.1 million people, most of them Jewish, were killed during the siege of Jerusalem. They came in, they besieged it. Their bodies were literally piled up around the altar. The usual population of Jerusalem was slightly enlarged, given that many had come to the city to celebrate the Passover, which was to occur right as the siege was being launched. 
Prior to the siege, the Romans had allowed Jewish worshippers to enter the city for the feast, but they did not allow them to leave. And so there was a horrific massacre, and they decided they would destroy every trace of the temple and the temple mound. They would actually, they said, that we don't want it to look as if anybody's lived here. We want it to look completely uninhabited. And so Jesus, not, stone, not one stone left upon another, was absolutely literal. And there was this horrific, and it didn't just stop there. Like there's just the, 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 the killing of the Jews. It was like a holocaust. And the Romans, to expunge the name, they even changed the, the, the province of Judea, which was a Roman province. They changed it to to Palestine, which in theirs was, was Philistine. It, they named it after Philistine to the earlier aggressors, uh, attackers of the land. And so the, they called it Palestine to erase the name of the Jews from Judea. And um, so that was the, what happened in AD 70. And that was like prefiguring the end of the world events. <clears throat> so um, that was... We'll, we'll, we'll look at the passage now in the light of these facts that I've just given you. And I'm going to give you then some of these explanations of how it all fits together. So let's look at this passage again. Uh, what we have then, the first point he says, don't be led astray. There's a lot of things got to happen first. And that's kind of a general point. Um, there's going to be a lot of things happening before I return don't jump to any conclusions. And here he's talking about his final return in those uh, verses 5 through 8. And then we have uh, uh, verses 9 through, through 13. We have a long-term warning about things that are going to be happening during the time before his second coming. Be on your guard. You'll be persecuted, but first the gospel must be preached to all the nations. So the first is a very general one. The second point he makes about persecution is a general one right through to his second coming. And all of these things here are applicable. And um, this, uh, this part here about do not, but say whatever is given to you at the time, for it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. I just wanted to say something about that. Um, this doesn't mean to say that um, that um, they were to like just like hear this inner voice and then speak it out and then wait for another voice and speak it out. What it means is that if you are filled with the Spirit and you're in prayer and you're looking to God to support you, God will give you the words to say and they'll be your words, but because you're Spirit-filled, they'll be coming out as your words. Once I was praying for somebody and um, I was just praying for them and a verse came to my mind that I thought was relevant and I, I spoke the verse and, um, and the guys suddenly, his eyes came open, he looked at me and he said, you hear from God? And I said, oh, thank you. What are you? And he said, that verse is the verse I've been concentrating on today. So like, so the Spirit gave it to me, but it wasn't like the Spirit kind of whispered into my ear and I heard him and then I repeated it. No, it, it was my voice. Because I was, I was in the Spirit as I was praying, and because I, uh, you know, if, we, if we are Christians, then we want to be filled with the Spirit, then it's not... So what I don't think he's saying, you know, sit there and meditate until you, get some, you hear some words. He's saying, no, don't worry about this. 
as if you are really looking to God and trusting in God, as you speak, God will be giving you the right word to say. And I've heard other occasions people like witnessing to unbelievers and they say, you know what, I don't know what, what came over me, but I just said exactly what they needed to hear at that time. And like, I just had the right words and it wasn't me. It, it was one greater than me speaking through me. So I want to encourage you in that, that um, this, even though you might not be in trial and facing, you know, facing a judge when this happens, this can happen to you at any time if you're really trusting God to be working through you in your life. <clears throat> so anyway, lots of things generally he's speaking about. Now he switches to short term. And uh, this is some very specific advice for what's going to they are going to see in their lifetimes. Because <clears throat> this is around about just after AD 30. And uh, so some of them are going to live through this time. <clears throat> when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be. In other words, when you see a repeat event to what happened that Daniel was prophesying, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Now, in other words, you see the Romans there. You see the Romans approaching Jerusalem. They shouldn't be there. Uh, this is... This is a repeat of what happened before, just run. And actually, this is what happened. Apparently, many large numbers of Christians were saved during this time because they remembered the words of Jesus. They didn't stay in Jerusalem. They went. Apparently, the Romans came into the city and then they kind of went out, allowed people in. At that point, all the, the Christians fled. And uh, they, um, the, uh, there's, um, they were saved from this. So they took this to heart. Notice um, how sensitive Jesus is to the plight of women at this time. Jesus often in his life, and you should read his story, he's very sensitive to the value of women, and he's particularly bringing out the, the, the problems that they're going to have at this time. And he also says, pray it may not be winter, which might sound odd. You know, surely God knows the weather. But no, God, we, we can actually... Uh, God wants us to pray. He wants us to participate in his plans through prayer. And, and uh, sometimes, you know, God has planned something, but he's planned that people will be praying for that, and that will happen as an answer to prayer. So we don't have any archaeological record of what the weather was like at that time, to my knowledge, but um, we can trust that God was with them in that. Then we have a general term about the suffering, uh, tribulation, like, unlike anything that's happened. And what I think uh, it's talking about here is this short-term tribulation at Jerusalem, the horrific destruction by the Romans, was actually a picture of what's going to happen at the end of the age. And he starts warning them about um, this time of suffering, about false Christs, false prophets, signs and wonders being on guard. And then we move forward. This is very, very clearly talking about uh, the return of, of Jesus in the clouds with great power. And this is after a, after a time of tribulation, this kind of future time of tribulation, time of suffering, this is going to happen. So it seems like the suffering of Jerusalem um, and the destruction there is like a picture of what God is going to do at the end of time. And then we move on to a warning to watch and uh, watch the fig tree. You know, we, you, you can watch nature and you can get, you can see summer's coming. You know, you may see we've got little, some of the trees have got little buds on them now already. 
and it's a sign that summer is coming. <clears throat> so one of the problems that we had um, when we read it last time was in, in verse 30, what I read to you before, instead of those words in red, I read, I tell you the truth, um, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. You, that generation, who he's speaking to? Well, when I, I did a little bit of digging into what the, the, uh, the, um, the Greek word is and how, what experts have said on it, and the word this doesn't, can mean who he's talking to, but it can mean the ones he was just speaking about. So this in terms of language, and it's this generation who he's just been speaking about here who have, have seen um, Jesus, the events that show Jesus being right at the door. So once the final events start, like once God starts to move in, then the generation that sees things happening will happen in less than a generation. The last events before Jesus returns, once you begin to see the signs, it will happen. So, um, that makes sense? Okay. So, um, then the long term, the, he ends up by saying, by that, um, as for that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son. Now, did Jesus know? Well, I want to tell you, Jesus was God. Jesus could have accessed the knowledge, but he's chosen to only depend in his life on what was revealed to him by the Spirit, because Jesus was living as an example for us of how a spirit-filled human can live. And Jesus, at any time, could have done a miracle in his own power. That was the temptation to turn stones into bread. But he chose to, to, to depend on the power given him from the Father because he was demonstrating what the new humanity, what we should be able to do. He was living as an example. And so it was like he, he could have reached into his pocket and pulled out the timetable and he could have seen when he'd be returning. But he chose not to do that um, at that time. Now, of course, he knows because he's, he's in glory. But living in, in humanity, he chose to live in that place where he's dependent on revelation from God and God had not given him, the Father had not given him that revelation. Um, and he, then he gives this parable about somebody going on a journey and they return and uh, they, they, um, the uh, people living in the house should be ready when he returns to receive them back again. And uh, this, this means that they shouldn't be preoccupied with, with looking for signs of return. No, they should be actually getting on and looking after the house and making sure everything is ready. So I'm going to hope that I've satisfied you with some of the problems here, and I would love to talk with more of you afterwards if I haven't, if you've got, still got questions, because there are so many things that come up. But um, I'd like to pull this together into um, a timeline. And my timeline is that um, persecution and betrayals start already, very soon, as soon as Jesus died, you know that, that James was, was killed, um, 
that Stephen was, was put to death. There were various persecutions. Saul was persecuting them. And that started very soon, before AD 70. And that's gone right the way through this age. So persecutions, betrayals start. And then at AD 70, we have the temple is destroyed. We have the abomination. We have tribulation began, the first like pic- picture of tribulation that was picturing the final tribulation. Then we have a period of over, you know, a couple of thousand years at least of wars, rumors of wars, natural disasters. The end is not yet. And I would say that we are in this. And um, uh, I'm not going to do this right now, but I can fit this into the structure of Revelation. I've done a lot of work in Revelation. I've taught and I've written papers on Revelation and the timeline. I can fit this in very, very well into the structure of Revelation. Um, the end is not yet. And then we have a short but intense period of suffering, which is called the Great Tribulation. And during this time, there are false prophets, there's signs and wonders, and an intensification against, the, against God's people. But God's people will, will be preserved during this time. We will have, I believe, supernatural preservation, um, but it will be an intense period during this time. And I believe at this time, there will be uh, lots of false teachers who are tempting people to go and, you know, this is the Christ, I'm the special prophet, uh, and, and taking us off into those directions. And then Jesus returns in power in the clouds. Now, I know that there are lots of different views of this, and there are views which say, no, Christians get taken out before the tribulation. They go, Jesus takes them out with the rapture. Others say, no, the rapture actually is Jesus returning in power, and we rise to meet him, um, which is what I believe. But, like, I'm not going to to, um, say there are lots of different views, and I'm not going to say that everybody's got it all worked out. I think the main thing is Jesus is coming. Amen? He's coming, he will destroy the works of darkness at his return, and we need to trust and to hang on and to be ready. And so I want to just try and distill it down now. We've looked at faith, we've looked at these prophecies of future events. I want to look at how we should respond, and I've got one single slide we're going to end up with here. The first of all is don't be discouraged. Everything is meticulously planned. God has everything in control, so do not be discouraged no matter how much opposition you might see, no matter how many problems. And then I've got three, I've got three things that, that I think this passage is teaching us. First of all, be discerning. The mark of true, a true sheep is love. And when you see um, people coming and they've got all these ideas of... Um, no, you've got to do this. Uh, this is the this is um, and trying to divide God's people on the basis of, of their ideas. If they're dividing God's people, that's not an act of love. And there's been a, recently several groups on Facebook who've been trying to infiltrate churches with special teaching on Revelation. And they are like, we have the answers to Revelation. We've got our own special teaching. And I want to suggest to you that any group that's fixated on studying the signs is not prepared, is not ready for Jesus' return. They're actually focusing on completely the wrong things. What we should be focusing on is, is, um, uh, our, our comment is we should be focusing on just being a loving 
loving people, reflecting the love of Jesus, building the kingdom, reaching the lost in this world, being the church that Jesus is called to be, not going to all sorts of end times detail and saying, oh, no, this is happening, this is happening, and oh, COVID meant this, and you know, the vaccination means that, and like, like all this sort of stuff, which is, <coughs> which is just <coughs> not about being ready for Jesus' return. It's, it's, it's all these false teachers trying to distract people from the true thing. So be discerning. And this is my, my, my first thing. And Jesus is telling us to do this. And this comes out throughout Jesus' talk. Be discerning. Watch out. And there will be people who try and drag you away from the path. The second thing is don't be surprised by a wave of persecution. It's for a short time. And Peter says this as well. Don't be surprised. Like, this is going to happen. We're going to see bad things happen. Don't be surprised. The good thing is it's a very short time and God will keep you. Just trust in him, but don't be surprised. And the third one is be ready. And this is how Jesus ends it. And I want to end it today. Be ready for your beloved's return. Invest in the future. I know there's some people here who are uh, work in the investment industry. Well, you know, this is where your investments need to be. They need to be past the time, the other side of Jesus' return. This is where you need to invest. Invest in the future by investing your energy um, in what he loves. Get your house ready. Get your house ready for Jesus' return. Um, when Jesus returned, he divided the sheep and the goats on the basis of, of whether they, they, were, they showed love or not. That was, that was how he divided them. So... Um, that is how we should respond to this. We should be discerning. We should not be surprised at things that are going to happen. And we should be ready. Now, somebody might say, Andrew, do you think it's going to happen in our, our lifetime? It could well. It could well happen very soon. It could. Um, I, uh, I think we should be, uh, you know, one of the things about prophecy is often prophecy is very difficult to work out before it happens. As it's happening, you understand, and afterwards you can look back and say, wow, that prophecy of Daniel's worked out perfectly, exactly. Um, and, you can, you can, and I think the same thing is going to happen. That when Jesus returned, we can look back and read Revelation and these other things and say, wow, it was so detailed, it was so specific, but I could never have guessed it exactly what would happen and so and I think that uh, this is what how God wants us to respond um, not be surprised and be ready and so I'm going to pray now that all of us would really take to heart this message of Jesus and that eyes will be set on our beloved we will have complete confidence in him and we, we, we will know that we if we are followers of Jesus we will spend eternity with him in paradise and uh, any, any suffering we have now will be just a bit of blip in our memory. Heavenly Father, thank you that the future is in your hands. Thank you, God, that throughout history, you have, your purposes have always been worked out. And Lord, we praise you now that everything is in your control. And Lord, we pray that you would give us discernment when all sorts of things come up. Lord, we pray that you would give us strength when there's persecution, when there's opposition. Lord, strengthen us. Lord, may we not lose our faith in, in your love for us. And Lord, we pray that we'll be ready. We will be 
filled with love for you and joy and just longing to see our beloved return and longing to spread his kingdom and spread your love across this world, ready for your return. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.